You're listening to audio from Highland Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. To find out more about Highland, go to www.hbcwaco.org. And let me ask this question. What does it mean to experience the closeness of God? What happens when, when God is close to us? Do you mind finding a copy of God's word? Maybe you brought with you or maybe sit next to someone that has a Bible or go to your smartphone and go to that app. Would you go with me to Isaiah chapter six? And as you get there, I have a, a confession to make. So I'll let you get there first and I'll, that's, that's my teaser for you to stick around the next couple of seconds. So Isaiah chapter six. Last Monday, when I met with our communication team uh, Monday afternoon and kind of walked through the sermon, I had three sermon ideas for this coming Sunday, which is a little odd for me. I'm usually kind of know where I'm headed. And at the top of the list was um, God's closeness to Mary, the, the mother of Jesus. Kind of wanted to head there. The second choice was a really interesting story out of Second Samuel uh, of Dagon getting close to God, and, and it didn't go so well for him. And then like a really low third place was Isaiah chapter six. And I think because uh, for many people who grew up in church, Isaiah six is just such a familiar passage. Like we, I think we hear it all the time and we sing a lot of songs that come from Isaiah chapter six. And so as the week went by, the Lord pressed more and more deeply on my heart that it, it just has to be Isaiah chapter six. So I'm hoping you're in Isaiah six. We have looked the last few weeks at about seven more or less lesser known people or lesser known stories and how these women and men drew close to God and, and, and the stories that maybe some of you've heard before, maybe brand new stories and how they, they got close to God. But this passage here in Isaiah chapter six is one of the richest, most influential, consequential passages of all of the Old Testament. In fact, I would say that Isaiah chapter six informs not only the rest of the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter six informs the rest of the Bible. It informs the New Testament. It is that important of a passage. And so I know it's familiar to so many of you, but I am asking that God by his spirit might stir our affections one more time through Isaiah six for his closeness, for knowing this God. Isaiah chapter six. And let me, let me read it to you as normally I would. But can I ask for you to picture this story with me? To picture it in, in your mind like it was the very first time you've ever heard it. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. With two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I'm lost. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people with unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphim flew to me, and having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, 
This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Isaiah chapter six, verse one. I hope you didn't miss this verb. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. I mean, here's Isaiah coming to the temple as he had every Sabbath. I mean, probably by this time in his life, he had come to 1,200, 1,300, 1,400 times to the temple. And he was coming to this place of worship like we would come to church and the last person he expected to see there was God. And when he showed up, God showed up in full force. It was not, eh, God. It was God. All of God. Full force, epic God. Let me just tell you that God doesn't always approach his people this way. In fact, in the very next book, the book of Jeremiah, and when God came to Jeremiah, he almost with great compassion and tenderness said to Jeremiah, I have known you before you were even formed in your mother's womb. Even before you were born, I had set you aside and I appoint you now to be a prophet to the nations. And Jeremiah said, ah, Lord God, I'm way too young. I, I cannot speak well. And God, with great mercy and patience and tenderness, said, no, no, don't, don't say that you're too young. I, I will tell you where to go, and I will go before you. I will be near you. I will tell you the places to go. And do not say, Jeremiah, that you cannot speak, for I will give you the words. And then it says in Jeremiah 1 that God reached down and placed his words in the mouth of Jeremiah. It was a tender, compassionate, reserved God probably because Jeremiah thought very little of himself, which makes me wonder if Isaiah thought a lot of himself. Did you know that Isaiah was of the royal family? It seems that he was the nephew of King Uzziah. I mean, Isaiah had power. He had clout. He was the upper echelon. He probably had money. He was in the class of of royalty. Maybe he did think a lot of himself. He is not like all the other prophets. Most of the other prophets, especially the minor prophets in the Old Testament, they they were out of poverty. They were poor. Amos, he was a bruiser of sycamore fruit. You know what that is? This was the guy that would walk around the fields of the sycamore trees, and he would punch the sycamore fruit. Because you had to beat that fruit in order for it to ripen so you could eat it. And it was, it was a fruit of the poor. It was a mass fruit, mass produced. It was cheap so that anyone could eat it and anyone could buy it. And that's what Amos did. He was of such poverty that he just went around and his job was bruising sycamore fruit. Habakkuk, he was a poor musician. But I repeat myself. I think that's the only kind of musicians there are, right? A poor, a poor musician. But not Isaiah. He was wealthy. He was from the upper class, the upper echelon. He was from royalty, of the royal family. And so, so maybe Isaiah was, was a little haughty. Maybe he had a little self-sufficiency to him. Maybe he was independent. Maybe there was some arrogance there. Maybe he was a, oh man, what's that word? Maybe he was a Texan, right? Like he just kind of thought a whole lot of himself and and really felt like he was pretty self-sufficient. So when God shows up, God shows up full force. He needed a full force God and a full force God he got. God was high and lifted up and there was smoke and there was a, a shaking 
temple. Let me just read this to you one more time. I know you've heard it once already. Let me read it to you again and just catch with me the enormity of God's presence. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated upon a throne and he was high and he was lifted up and the train of his robe, which might also be rendered the very hem of his robe. In the enormity of the temple, just the hem, just the train of his robe filled up the temple. And above him stood these seraphim, or your Bible might call them seraphs, same thing. And they had these six wings. With, with two, the seraphim covered his face, the two his feet. With two, he flew. And they just called out to one another, this reverberating, echoing song. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds of, of the temple began to shake at the voice of him, not the voice of God, the voice of the seraphim who called, and the house was filled with smoke. It was an intense scene when God drew close. And these seraphim, here in verse two, or again, your Bible might call them seraphs, same, same word. Did you see what's happening? They have six wings. With two, they flew, ready to serve God, ready to do the bidding of the Lord, ready, they were coiled, ready to spring into action. And then you have two wings that are covering their feet, which was an act of, of unworthiness, an act of, of modesty. And then with two of the wings, they were covering their face because they had trouble looking into the brilliance of the holiness of God, which begs this question, how holy is God? The angels cannot even look at him. Angels who were not fallen, who were not sinful, still could not look into the presence of the glorious radiance and brilliance and the holiness of God. How holy must this God be that angels cannot look directly at him? I'll give you an attempt of an answer. We have an incomprehensibly great God. Our God reigns. And that's the best I can do on a Sunday morning with the time that I have allotted. What kind of holy God is this? We have an uncomprehensibly great God. Our God reigns. King Uzziah died. He'd been the king for 52 years. Uh, you and I are accustomed to four-year presidents or, or eight-year presidents. But most in Israel at that time, the only king they had ever known was King Uzziah. And he was a pretty good king. He he stumbled at the end of his reign through some of his pride and some of his arrogance. But overall, he really did well. That The country flourished underneath him. In fact, the covenant people of God did well under King Uzziah. And now he was dead. Now he was gone. Now there was a vacuum. Like, who would they look to? Who would now be the king? And it says right here, Isaiah looked up and he saw who the real king was. And that king was still on his throne. Throughout history, Highland, Lords have come and lords have gone. Presidents have come and presidents have gone and kings have come and kings have gone. But there is a king who remains and he is high and lifted up when Isaiah saw him surrounded by these seraphim. Now, seraphim literally means in Hebrew, the burning ones. So these are angels ablaze in the adoration of God. 
How many are there? Well, John in Revelation chapter five, he was at the throne room as well. And he looked up and he said, the angels there and the creatures of heaven, there were thousands times thousands. And then he said, myriads time myriads. What is myriads? It's a number that's too high to count multiplied by a number that's too high to count. That's how many angels there are. And John was overwhelmed with the presence of the angels as they were ablaze in the adoration of God. Isaiah saw the same thing. He saw these angels who were ablaze in the adoration of God. So just stay with me for a moment. Can you imagine even this morning, would you consider with me that while we're seated here in this house, there are tens of thousands of millions of angels calling out and echoing out the praise of God, ascribing majesty to our God. Would you consider with me when we sing and we gather on Sunday mornings, that we're joined by, no, we join in the chorus of heaven. When we sing, just know. When you sleep, just know. When you're driving around, just know. When you forget, just know. We don't care to know, just know that millions of angels are ascribing praise and glory and honor and majesty and dominion and sovereignty to our God. But the seraphim, the angels can even bear to look at God directly. They, they, they couldn't look at him, but they wanted to look. They could not not look. Like they had to, to peer in and see this God and they were, they were praising him. And what was that echoing, reverberating song? What is this song selection for seraphim? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. What word is repeated? Holy. The holiness of God is terrifying because he's perfect, period. He has never had a wrong action, never had a wrong motive, never had a wrong thought. He is perfect in all of his ways, but it's not just that he is, he, he is without error, he is also without equal. There's no one like our God. So what is the holiness of God? We, we talk about the holiness of God. We sing songs about God being holy. What is the holiness of God? Well, it's all of the attributes of God wrapped up into one. It is his total trustworthiness, but not just that. It is his inexhaustible grace, but not just that. It is his unending generosity, but not just that. It's the vastness of his majesty, but not just that. It's his absolute justice, but not just that. It is all of those things together. It would be folly for me this morning to try to compare anything that we might know to God. He is unequaled. There is no one like him. His sovereignty is total, which is why it says in your Bible here in verse three, the whole earth is filled of his glory, is full of his glory. His creation is a continual explosion that speaks and sings to the glory of God. And 30 years later, Isaiah is still not over it. Because as he writes this really long book over the course of his entire life, and I'll just read it to you, he gets to Isaiah 40, and this is probably again 30 years after what happens in Isaiah chapter six, when he sees the Lord, and here's what God says to Isaiah, to whom will you compare me? This is Isaiah 40, 25. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the stars one by one and calls them each by name because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. 
There are hundreds of billions of stars in our galaxy, and our galaxy is one of billions of galaxies across the universe and the known universe. So you do that multiplication in your head. How many stars are there? 100 billion times 100 billion times 100 billion times 100 billions, all the way almost to the end of infinity, and God has a name for every one of them. Joe, and a star stands to attention. Tia, there she is. Bart, some of you old timers will get that later on. X94F9er. I don't know what God calls the stars, but I know he calls them each by name and not one of them is missing in his sight. This is the power of God, the whole earth, the whole universe, the whole known universe, the whole unknown universe is filled with his glory, which means every ounce of liquid on our planet, every, every grain of sand on our planet, every inch of, of, of the entire universe, these all sing out and ascribe to the glory of God. The whole earth, Isaiah 40 says, is filled and full of his glory. We've got to consider in the middle of Isaiah chapter six, though, something that speaks so loudly to us is that Christianity is not just about rules and, and regulations. It's not just about rituals of coming to church and kind of doing the right thing and then singing the right songs. Christianity is about knowing this great God. This is what we see in Isaiah chapter six, that we can experience God, that we can, we can know and taste and see that he is God. So something happened dramatically in the life of Isaiah that day. There was a shift in his life. He went from ritual to relationship. Uh, he, he went from knowing about God to knowing God. He went from entering into church to entering into his presence. And Isaiah would never, ever, ever be the same again. May that be said of us. When we see God, when we know God, when we taste and see God, when we experience God. There's some stories, or a story of some sisters in the Bible. Um, Martha and Mary, you probably know this story. It's a great story. Jesus was coming to town, and when Jesus came to town, he was going to come and go to Mary and Martha's house. And so when that news reached Mary and Martha that Jesus was coming to their house, Martha went into a panic. She frantically started running around the house. I've got to cook. I've got to shop. I've got to clean. I've got all these things to do. I've got to get busy for Jesus. And what does Mary do? Jesus comes in and she sits at his feet and she listens and she adores him. Martha comes running by the den. Says, Jesus, will you please tell my sister to start serving you? And Jesus says, Martha, she is. Actually, what Jesus said was, Martha, Martha. And I love that he said it twice. I think she was so busy. I think it was Martha. Martha! You're so busy. And you're so troubled by so many things. Here's what Jesus said. Mary has chosen the best part. In other words, Martha, you have let your religion squeeze out knowing God. You're so busy for me. You're so involved with all these, these things. You're so religious. You're, you're, you're doing things, yes, for me, but under the religiosity, do you know me? Have you experienced me? Do you love me? 
Now, Jesus didn't crawl up on the cross just so we could be busy. Jesus didn't go to the cross just so you and I could go to meetings. Let me just ask this question of you, and this may be an offensive question to some, but I'll let the chips fall where they may. Here's, Here's the question. Are you living a life you could have lived before knowing Jesus and his cross? You're a smart congregation. You know this, but people were busy for God before the cross. And people were diligently ritualistic before the cross. There were people who were serving God before Christ came to his cross. People were religious before Jesus. And so my question for you this morning that might be a little pointed, and maybe this is why I struggled preaching this passage, because maybe this is to me. Are you just busy? Are you just religious? Or do you know God? Does your life look right now like it could be before Christ even came? Busy, active, religious, ritualistic, great knowledge about God. Listen, Highland, Jesus came that we might have access to God. Jesus went to the cross and then rose from the grave so that we might know this God, not just know about this God, that we might know this God. Jesus went to the cross so that we could enter in close to God and not be consumed by his glorious fire. Or do our lives just look like the cross never happened and we're just busy and ritualistic and doing things and meeting for God. You know, you could have great doctrine and great knowledge and you can have a good reputation on your campus. You can have a good reputation in the city. You can be involved at Highland on every level and it can still be Martha stuff. Just busy, just meeting, just religious. And I guess the epic question of the ages is this. Do you know God? Have you experienced God? Have you been drawn into his presence and and closeness? Is there a joy in him? Is there a love for him? Is there a worship of him? Or are our lives as if the cross never even happened? Maybe another way to consider that is our Christian behavior, our Christian actions daily, because our cup has been filled by Jesus? Or is our Christian behavior, our Christian activity, is it masking an empty cup? And we try to stay so busy and so duty-filled that we only do things because we feel like we have to, not because of a relationship with God. And this is what happened in the life of Isaiah when he experienced God. It moved from ritual and I have to to the joy of relationship with God. One day Isaiah came to church and surprise, surprise, he saw God. Maybe the last person he expected to see at church. I wonder if we gather and we forget that we have come to experience the presence of the living God as his people. Verse five, and I said, 
Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. But my eyes, my eyes have seen the king. I have seen the Lord of hosts. And so when Isaiah sees God, Isaiah sees his own sin because he is there in the light of the holiness of God. God's closeness to Isaiah did not produce a, a wow. It produced a woe. He realized in the perfection of God, how imperfect he was. And so he begins to confess. He's like, I, I have unclean lips. My, my words are bad. My words are dirty. And, and, and my, my unclean words come from an unclean heart. Not only do I have unclean lips, but I live with people who have unclean lips. But now I've seen God. Now I have experienced the Lord of, of hosts. And so here's what's happening. Our immense sin stands in stark contrast to God's immense holiness. Here's Isaiah standing, his heart fully exposed in the presence of God, and he sees his own depravity. He sees his own wickedness. He sees his own sin. He begins to confess having a filthy mouth, which of course comes from a filthy heart. And then he begins to confess the sin of his nation. I, God, I, I, I'm around unclean people all the time, filthy people all the time. When Isaiah sees God, he sees his own sin. And from the altar, don't miss this, from a place of sacrifice, hope your Bible's open, verse seven and uh, verse six, then one of the seraphim flew to me. So with the, the two wings that he can fly, one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and he said, behold, this has now touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. So from the altar, from a place of sacrifice, which was the altar before the throne of God, it was a place where, where sacrifices were made for sins which is, church, for us, the foreshadow of the cross. God declares Isaiah, listen, guiltless. You're innocent. Your sins have been forgiven. Friends, how is this possible? It is simply because this. We have a shockingly merciful Savior. It should undo us every time we consider our filthy lips, our filthy hearts, our immense sin in light of his immense holiness. That we have a Savior that is so counterintuitive, shockingly filled with mercy, that Jesus would, in the Old Testament picture, would place himself on this altar of sacrifice. This altar is a shadow of Christ's cross where Jesus would sacrifice himself for our sin. So this, don't, don't miss this, this glorious, perfect, holy, exalted, lifted up God becomes our savior so that anyone who would come to him for forgiveness. He, out of the mercy of his heart, the compassion in God, would forgive us. <laughs> Isaiah came to church and he saw God. Would you stand with me please for us to pray together?
Father, thank you that you are shockingly filled with mercy and grace and compassion. God, there is, there is no one like you. We want to experience you, not just when we come into these church walls, we can experience you and know you daily, abiding in you. And God, there is, there's no one like you. You are unequaled. Not only are you without error, you are without equal. You're perfect in your holiness. You're beautiful in your holiness. The seraphim sing a song that that we want to join in. You are a holy, holy, holy God. All of your attributes wrapped up into one. A holy, holy, holy God. And Waco is filled with your glory. And this church is filled with your glory and this neighborhood is filled with your glory and this nation should be filled with your glory. The whole earth is filled with your glory for all things under your creation ascribe to you your majesty and your praise. And God, when we stand in your immense holiness, we realize how much we need you. There is no one like our God, no one. So Father, we thank you that right now there are millions upon millions of your creation, the angels and the seraphim, reverberating across eternity your joyful, rightful song. And so do we. And so do we. Through Jesus, we desire to experience God, to know him. Amen.